Welcome back for part two of the Russian Revolution. And if you remember, we left off, we started talking about the Romanovs and what was going on with them, because we had all the stuff that was going on with Rasputin and whatnot, but, and the government had kind of been changed up, and the monarchy was taken away, but whatever happened to the family? Well, don't worry, let's find out. So, the royal family, the Romanov family, they had been captured and held by the Bolsheviks, if you remember, you know, Lenin's group, and they were being held in the Ipetiev house, and... The White Army, um, who was they supported the Romanovs, they were getting very close to this Ipetiev house. And that kind of sealed the fate of the Romanov family because the people that had held them were worried that if the, the Red Army got, I'm sorry, if the White Army got too close and they found out that they were capturing the, the they had the Romanovs, then they would, you know, kill all the, the captors, and free the Romanov family, which would be a big blow to the Red Army. So the family was told to get dressed and head to a lower level of this complex, this Impetiev house. And they were all shot and executed. Now, that's the, like, the kind of dull version or quick version of it, I should say. But then there's some kind of weird stuff. There was rumors that, you know, perhaps... Someone got out and away, um, meaning Anastasia, if you've ever heard those stories before. And so there was reports that the Romanovs, um, like the mother, had taken the littlest kids, which was like Anastasia and Alexei, and had like kind of torn apart their clothes a little bit and shoved a whole bunch of jewels and gems and diamonds and all kinds of stuff inside their clothes and sewed them up. So the kids were kind of walking around with like um, body armor made out of jewels. And so when the soldiers shot them, they they died, but some of them may have just been knocked unconscious because of the bullet impact, and so we never really knew what happened. And people claimed to be, you know, oh, I'm Anastasia and stuff, years later and whatnot. Um, but as far, well, at least at this point in history, they're all dead. But um, as far as we know, they were all now... They're all dead, but when we did find the bodies eventually, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, um, it does sound like that perhaps um, there was some bodies missing, like Alexei's body, for example, I think. So anyhow, these bodies were taken, and they were, in, they were dumped in a muddy forest outside the Russian city of Ekaterinburg, and their faces, before they were buried, were smashed, um, and acid was thrown on them to help to, to make it so like no one could identify them or recognize them. And they were actually kind of like thrown down a well, and then grenades were thrown down, and then like cars were backed up over it and stuff. And yeah, we never we didn't find the bodies until or anything about these bodies until after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So just think about how long people had to wait to have closure on what happened to the Romanovs. So. Anyhow, if you want to know more about that, there's tons more information out there and tons of conspiracies and everything about, oh, you know, someone made it out alive. Very interesting stuff. I highly recommend it if that's something you're interested in. But for the sake of this class, we must go on. So, the Reds, or the Red Army, the Communists, adopted a new policy in order to achieve victory during this civil war, and this was called War Communism. And that was taking over banks, mines, factories, and railroads. So basically you take over everything um, that helps people to move around and to make money and stuff and make weapons and all that stuff, and your enemy can't fight. And uh, during this time, one of the greatest military leaders and close friend to Lenin was this guy named Leon Trotsky. 
And remember that name because it's going to come up again here in a little bit. And so anyhow, in the end, the communists did win out over the white army. And there was a heavy cost to, the, to, to winning this war, though. Millions had died since the beginning of World War I. More had died because of famine, disease, and this civil war. So the Russia, and now known as the Communist Soviet Union, is not exactly doing the best. So it got renamed the Soviet Union, or Communist Soviet Union, in 1922. And this new government combined many different countries and states into one giant conglomerate known as the Soviet Union. And the government controlled everything, which, even though they say they're a communist government, that's socialism. And so now that this new government is in control, they introduced these things, NEPs, or New Economic Policies. And Lenin adopted a NEP that allowed for some capitalist ventures. So even though he says he's communist, but he acts like a socialist and now allows for, commun uh, for capitalists. So it's, it's kind of weird. Um, but anyhow, because he allowed some capitalist ventures, by 1928, food and industrial production were actually back to pre-war levels. So Lenin's not doing a bad job here. But sadly, 1924, um, which I know I said 1928 there because his stuff was like a C. But anyhow, 1924, Lenin dies. And there was two people that were probably going to be picked, one of them was going to be picked to take over, and that would have been Leon Trotsky, who we mentioned earlier, and someone else we haven't talked about yet, Joseph Stalin. And Joseph Stalin was actually born Joseph Dugchevelli, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, to a poor family in Georgia, and that is not Georgia, the United States, that is Georgia, the country. And he joined the Bolsheviks, and he got the name uh, Stalin, which means man of steel. And while Lenin was still alive, Stalin was kind of given the job of party secretary, and he used to gain a lot of power and influence. And by the way, uh, just a quick little side note, if you still want to visit Lenin today, his body is kept on display in Moscow. So even though he's been dead since 1924, his body is preserved and on display under glass, and you can go see it if you're in Moscow. But anyhow, um, so Lenin, while he was alive, um, didn't really 100% trust Stalin. Um, a little quote from him. Comrade Stalin has concentrated enormous power in his hands, and I am not sure that he always knows how to use that power with sufficient caution. So look, he's like, he's got a lot of power. I don't trust he knows how to use that power. Well, Lenin kind of favored Trotsky to take over after him, but after, after Lenin's death, Stalin was able to seize power. Um, so Trotsky, Trotsky soon fled to Mexico to like, kind of like get away from any kind of secret police or anyone who might come after him. Well, Stalin sent his assassins or secret police after him, and they caught up with Trotsky in Mexico and killed him by putting a pickaxe in the back of his head. Pretty effective way to kill him, I would say. And now that Stalin's in power... He wanted to bring the entire economy around. So even though Lenin was doing some good things, and it you know started and it even got better by 1928, now that Stalin's completely in control, he starts changing things. He proposed a five-year plan, um, and actually they were kind of multiple five-year plans, and they kept changing. And like they'd get three years in, and he'd be like, "All right, we have a new one," but we didn't finish the old one. And anyhow, the overall goal of these five-year plans was building heavy industry, improving transportation, and increasing farm output. And this set up what we call a command economy, or the government controls all basic economic decisions. Well, the results of this, yeah, some industry was built up and many people were pushed to produce. 
Um, but if you didn't produce what was expected, um, you were punished. If you, were, if you did produce what you were expected, you were rewarded. And the punishments, as we talked about, were you were sent to the gulags or labor camps. And many managers of these places were so scared to say that like they didn't meet the quota or quantity that they were supposed to make, that they would fake numbers or find ways to make the quota, but maybe lower quality. And yeah, um, it didn't go well, is what it comes down to. So um, Stalin revolutionized, revolutionized, not necessarily in a good way, agriculture um, by taking farms uh, from small plots of land to giant, large farms, where like he combined a whole bunch of little ones into one big one. And these were called collectives, or large farms owned and operated by peasants as a group. And some of these peasants resisted, especially a certain group of peasants called kulaks, which were the wealthy peasants, because if I'm wealthy and I have a whole bunch of stuff, why do I want to give that up to the state? And most of them were sent to those labor camps we talked about, the gulags. And, and as an act of resisting this collectivization of the farms, um, some of the peasants would slaughter livestock, burn crops, and sell animals just to keep them away from the government. By 1929, 34 million horses uh, which were essential for farm work, um, were killed. And remember, this is 1929. We said things were going good in 1928. Well, once Stalin came into power, he started changing things in like 28, and then we get to 29. So there was 34 million, I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier. 34 million horses were around in 1929, and then by 33, 19.6, and then also 1933, um, which that was just a 10, over 10 million drop in horses. So these farmers are not happy. 1933, 30 million cattle were slaughtered, and as a result of this, 45% of all the cattle were gone since 1929. To give you an idea of perspective, um, the same thing goes for sheep and goats. So everything is just, you know, numbers are decreasing by a lot. Um, Stalin took much of the grain from the Ukraine region uh, because it was kind of like the breadbasket, and because of that. He took all the food from them. There was a huge famine in that area, or lack of food. Five to eight million people starved to death and died. Um, if you saw pictures of it, you would think it was the Holocaust. Um, that's how bad it looked. In 1934, we see the Great Purge. So Stalin's power was absolute at this point, and he started to become paranoid. So he used his secret police to start killing off all the old Bolsheviks, anyone who could you know, potentially take over power. Uh, this included party activists, army heroes, industrial managers, writers, and even some ordinary citizens that just, like, he didn't like them kind of thing. Um, and they would just disappear. And he would have these things called show trials where, you know, he would just, you know, put people up on the stand and make them confess to crimes against Mother Russia. And these confessions were, uh, they kind of, they basically tortured and beat them until they confessed. Um, and this absolute power, um, he had killed a lot of military leaders in his quest for this power, and this kind of becomes an issue when we get to World War II because he doesn't have anyone to fight for him um, or to lead his army. So um, Stalin maintained his power now that he had it through, obviously, scare tactic, uh, tactics, uh, terror, propaganda, and the war on religion. And... These all helped to turn the Soviet Union into a totalitarian state, or one-party dictatorship. And so just to outline that terror for you, what I mean by it. Um, so to ensure obedience, he used his secret police, as we mentioned, censorship, which we've talked about before, 
purges where he would just take entire groups of people and get rid of them. Um, just anything to inflict terror on the people. Um, letters would be open and read to make sure that no one was planning anything. That should sound familiar back to Napoleon. Um, nothing could be published in the news without the government say so, a la, you know, newspapers being shut down like we talked about with Napoleon. And if you complained about any of this stuff, you were sent to the gulags or the work camps. That propaganda we have mentioned before in World War One was um, was used to spread the ideas of, you know, of Stalin being awesome and communism and so forth. There was a picture of Stalin in every home. Radios and loudspeakers blared into factories and village, movie theaters, um, schools, um, and, and basically everyone hearing about awesomeness of communism and the evils of capitalism. Newspapers, newsreels showed large harvests and new hydroelectric power facilities opening up and everything, even though some of this stuff was kind of fake because the country wasn't doing the best. And that war on religion we mentioned, uh, according to Karl Marx and Marxism, atheism was the way to go. Therefore, many churches were closed during this time. Priests and religious leaders went to the gulags, a la his purges. Um, I mean, it was just, it was, it was terrible. And, you know, even though you're supposed to have this classless society that Lenin wanted, now you have these, you know, this bourgeoisie that are now the new, the Communist Party leaders. They're the ones that are the, the haves, and everyone else is the have-nots. Now, that being said, I guess you could say there were some benefits to the Soviet Union. Uh, there were social benefits. Everyone got free education. Um, the problem is you got the education that Stalin wanted you to have. You got free medical care, free daycare, inexpensive housing, and public recreation. Um, the nice thing is you had all these things, but if you disobeyed them, they could take away all of that. Um, talking about that education required children to attend school, and they supported technical schools and universities as well. But in school, you learned about atheism, communist values, basic skills, which is good, collective farming, because Stalin loved it, and, above all else, love for Stalin. Um, a lot of these things are similar to North Korea. Um, women in the Soviet Union, um, actually kind of good, were given equality under the law and treated completely equal. This was actually one of the few places in the entire world where women had completely equal rights to men. So I guess that's good. And, you know, just kind of for future reference here, the Soviet Union would continue on and would find itself in the same position as it did in World War I and World War II as far as, like, lack of supplies and so forth. Um, they had a lot of troops, but they just weren't supplied. And the Soviet Union went all the way until 1991, where it finally collapsed. And we'll be getting into that one in a later podcast. All right, we'll stop there, history fans. Hope to catch you again later.